0: Welcome to Building Safe Workplaces, casual talk about serious matters. I'm your host, Tommy Nip with Hask, and today you'll hear one of our recent webinars centered around COVID-19 and its current impact.
1: Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, 1130 on Wednesday, uh, deep into this pandemic. We're happy to have everybody back with us today. This was kind of a, a tag on an add on to our webinar series that we've hosted with the University of Texas School of Public Health. And what we realized very quickly is that no matter what topic we were talking about or supposed to be talking about, um, the conversations and the questions started gearing always towards testing. What, What capabilities are out there? What do you recommend for testing? How do I get my employees tested and back to work? Uh, so we wanted to do an extra session on employee testing. What's out there right now? What is at the disposal of employers to test these workers to get them back into work or just to make sure that you know everybody's healthy and, and those people are not infected or, or in general, what are the options for, for employers? And COVID testing. So I asked our good friend Dr. George Delclose to to jump on to another webinar today. So we're happy that you're here. We hope it's enjoyable, and we'll keep it entertaining as usual. Uh, we definitely want to encourage the asking of questions. We we're going to show a few slides up front just to kind of get a pulse on how are we doing, what are the testing capabilities, what is the, well, you know what are some of the new things on the horizon, but. We want to leave the vast majority of this hour and a half webinar to your questions. We want to make sure that we answer as many things as we can. So there should be a question box on the on your desktop or on the app that you're using. Type in those questions, uh, and I can see them. And we're gonna we're gonna answer as many as we can. Everybody is on mute who is an attendee, so so don't try to talk because we can't hear you. Uh, but please type in those questions to that question box. Um, webinar series. If you've joined us before, you know. But if if you're new, welcome. This is this is hosted by the Houston Area Safety Council and the University of Texas School of Public Health here in Houston. Uh, well, actually, all over all over the states, uh, we've had some of our experts in from San Antonio and El Paso, and and George is in Houston, so. We get, a, we get a variety of locations and experts from those locations, but these two entities have, have brought together this webinar series, and we hope you've enjoyed it. We hope you enjoy today's as well. Thank you to the many donors of, of UT. We could not do this without your support and your donations, as well as our, our sponsors from Houston Area Safety Council. We thank you for your support and your donations as well. Special thanks to our friends at Community Health First ER uh when we first started this pandemic at the at the houston area safety council and and ramping up testing they were very instrumental on helping us get some of those testing supplies so we could test people so uh thank you to those guys at community health first so brief agenda today you know we're going to talk all about testing today what are the current trends right now Uh, george is going to give a good update on that at the beginning but what are the options what is the the fda authorized uh under their uh, emergency uh, use act that says we can we can use these testing kits and these testing um, supplies Wh- what are those what's on the horizon we're going to talk a little bit about uh what are some of the cdc guidelines right now they change right the cdc updates things and and we are going to uh talk about what what the most recent guidelines are for that and then of course our our question and answer session at the uh, at the end there so i'm going to turn it over to george to talk about how we're looking right now i think you're muted
0: george thank you tommy and thanks everybody for uh, joining us again um if you've attended some of these webinars you'll know that i typically i start off with a review of what the situation is in the state as well as locally here in houston um, it's been all over the news, so a lot of this is not going to be uh, is not going to sound new to you, but it is worth reviewing. So, what we have on this uh, slide is the daily number of cases in Texas, beginning back in early March, to where we are now as of uh, yesterday. So, um, what we see, and in uh, connected to that is. Um, the line which is what's been called the seven day moving average of daily cases because some days you're going to have more cases another day you might have a few less than another one and you know oftentimes when you hear it in the news you'll hear them say well today's we've broken a new record we've hit the highest number of daily cases and and, and that's important to know but because numbers fluctuate it's also good to keep tabs on what we call the the seven day average so that's the average number of new cases in a week um and uh Plotted onto this are the different measures that have been uh, occurring in Texas uh, so you can see their effects on the rate so back in March uh, things were looking okay um, but they started to rise and and down here um, uh, near just before at the end of March you see that the curve was starting to grow uh, at that time and um, you know the way we were looking at it back then those seemed like worrisome increases and because of that, the shelter-in-place or um, recommendations and orders were, were put in, it's certainly here locally in Harris County, and we saw that curve start to flatten again after about two weeks, which is usually the period of time that you want to allow for any given measure to see what the effect of any given measure, whether it's a protective measure, or whether it's a reopening measure, to see what what, what effects it has. So uh, two weeks, the curve started to flatten again, and then on May 1st, we began the statewide reopening, which progressed in phases. You probably remember that. And initially, things looked okay. After two weeks after about uh, the phase one uh, reopening, numbers were uh, a little bit higher, not unexpected, but uh, not all that worrisome. So that uh, allowed the the state to go, this was about May 18th now, to go to phase two. And uh, phase two was kind of going okay towards uh, just before the two-week mark, the numbers started to look like they were increasing, and then Memorial Day hit, and then two weeks after, uh, uh, and then right after Memorial Phase, that coincided with the Phase Three reopening. This is when restaurant capacity went up, up bars were opened, et cetera, and you can see that very shortly after that, within two weeks, the uh, the the curve starts really taking off. It's funny looking back at it now; those little increases that what I call little increases now. That we are seeing because i'm looking at it with respect to the increase that we've seen in the last month seem tiny in retrospect but they were worrisome at the time and um and, and and now of course we're in the the throes of a huge surge so um around july 1st the governor hit the brakes on phase three reopening and then we had july 4th numbers are still increasing um, we still hit some new daily records over the last weekend, um, but daily inc- increases in the number of daily tests is not the only parameter we should look at because you might say, well, we're detecting more cases because we're testing more, so let next slide. Uh, our uh, colleagues here uh, at the uh, University of Texas School of Public Health and the Biostatistics and Epidemiology departments have, have looked at this relationship between the increased number of cases, which you see in orange here, and the increases in availability of tests, which is in the blue line. If all of the increases that we were seeing were solely due or exclusively due to increase in the availability of testing, the orange and blue line should be parallel. They are not. Uh, It is true that testing has gone uh, up. It's stabilized over the last uh, last week or so, Um, but the number of cases is outpacing any increase in testing and that's important to keep in mind because that tells us that whereas testing might explain some of the increase it does not explain all of the increase and by and actually there there are many other factors that explain the increase more so than just increases in testing next slide so you have to get granular on these things and um another metric that we use to see whether increases are due solely to more tests being available or not is what's called the test positivity rate that means out of all of the tests that you do let's say we do 100 tests the number of those tests that is positive expressed as a percentage is the test positivity rate so as of uh this is the data from yesterday but it, it i, I uh, it's really from two days ago in texas it is now uh 15 uh, percent just to put that in perspective that means that 15 out of every 100 tests that are done are positive for COVID. In general, we feel comfortable with reopening and, or we should feel comfortable with reopening and that things are under control, even if some cases are still appearing when the test positivity rate is at or below 5%. So we are three times that number now if you look towards the end uh so we we were higher than this uh a few days ago about five days ago we were around um 16 and a half uh, statewide so that's gone down to 15 or so which is encouraging but there aren't enough data points right now to uh, lower our guard and i think that's what all of the authorities have been saying uh the last couple of days only that there are some numbers that are looking a little bit better. Test positivity is one of them, although it's still way too high. Other things are like hospitalizations, uh, which you've heard that the hospitals are at capacity, certainly in ICU capacity in many places around the state, but that seems to have started to level off a little bit in some places, but not others. Next slide. And this not others is important to keep in mind because the numbers I've given you up until now our average numbers for the entire state of Texas. We all know that Texas is a big state, the biggest. Uh, forget the ice, the ice cube up there in the northwest. Um, but the um, so so it is a big state with a lot of people and a lot of variability in terms of these average numbers, of how they, the, the, the the numbers by counties relate to these average figures I just gave you. So for example, here blue is good, we have and white is even better white uh, means that there are uh, very few to no cases and these are these are hot spots but then you you start getting to the oranges and the red and those are hotter and hotter areas in terms of areas where numbers are still rising you have probably heard because it's on the national news that one particular area of concern right now is hidalgo county down in south texas very worrisome situation there the numbers are uh, still increasing rapidly and the hospitals Are overwhelmed there including their ICUs that is not the same situation in other locations so we look at these state figures it's important to know them but then you as employers or we as citizens also need to take into account our local figures Um, if you want to look up your county um, you can go to this website here the www.texaspandemic.org that's our School of Public Health dashboard created by our uh, colleagues in biostats and my statistics and epidemiology, and on the right you can see the daily percent increase or decrease um, in by counties. And uh, this is a fixed photo, so I can't scroll up and down. But if you you can scroll down to Harris County or Fort Bend or whatever, and you know numbers that are in orange or on the orange uh, side of the scale, it tells you what the increase, the percent increase, is day to day, and those that are in blue tells you what the percent decrease is, because there are some counties that are decreasing as well, Okay, So that's how you have to look at the numbers. Last slide, I think for me, is this one. And here locally in the Texas Medical Center, um, I've shown this slide before, we uh, have a set of early warning signs that try to, guide all of the hospital systems, health systems in the Texas Medical Center in terms of what can we do next when we see problems starting to rear their heads so that we don't run out of uh, hospital capacity, so that we don't run out of staff, so that we don't uh, offer appropriate protection to our workers, the healthcare, the frontline healthcare workers. And, um, these are these four indicators that we follow. which actually it's, it's it's a little bit more. Some of them I've already reviewed. So the upward trajectory of new daily cases, which was the first graph I showed you, and the upward trajectory of positive rates, which I also showed. You, I, I did say the last two or three days it's gone down, but when we what we do is, um, and this was from two days ago, we were still growing at that point. We're in the the yellow zone. Yellow is not as good as green, but it's not as bad as red. Uh, with respect to it, another parameter we follow is the, the number of patients in ICUs who are COVID positive. So they're, they're in the ICU because they have COVID. And that seems to have flattened a little bit over the last seven days in the Texas Medical Center. That doesn't mean that that's what's happening in Hidalgo or in Tarrant County, et cetera. These are our local statistics. So um, we want to see, actually see this go down. That's why it's still yellow. Uh, but yellow is better than red and there are plans in place should the uh icu's be stretched again we have we have plans in place to convert beds into more icu beds beds that aren't normally icu beds so there is some wiggle room but uh, sometimes it's not only the beds that are concerning it's having enough staff for those beds and we have had a lot of healthcare workers out not so much because they were positive because um at least in the Texas Medical Center, the overall numbers of infected healthcare workers compared to other places in the country or, frankly, other places in the world has been very manageable, very low. But there are many of these health care workers that are out because they're being quarantined, because they were exposed to somebody and they have to sit out 14 days before coming being allowed back to work. And that, that can drain, you know, take a toll on your staffing levels. The good news is, the same good news that I've been predicating for a a number of weeks is that we are doing well in terms of personal protective equipment and testing in the medical center we do a lot of testing here that's where i spend most of my days reviewing test results on our university employees so we're doing a lot but the personal protective equipment is the one that i'm proudest of we have had so many plans that we've put in place to make sure we never run out of n95s of gloves of gowns etc sometimes we get close and then we figure out something else to do to, to uh, bring some more in or we work our way around it. But we have never been depleted of these very important pieces of equipment to protect our healthcare workers. So that's it for me, Tommy.
1: All right. Thanks, George. Let's see what else is here. So I wanted to kind of give a, a brief update on, you know, what's the state of the union with this virus? What do we know about its contagiousness uh, today on July uh, 22nd? So we look at we look at the you know how contagious is something how likely is it to spread uh, by a number that's called its reproduction or R not number and it's basically if if one person has the virus how many additional people do we think are going to catch that virus from that one individual if you know if if we did nothing if we didn't wear masks if we if we didn't wash our hands all that good stuff so when you look you know we have this number for a lot of different contagious diseases so when you look at the flu we know that it has a re- reproduction number of about 1.3 meaning if i've got the flu the chances are that i'm going to spread that flu to 1.3 people uh while i have that while i had that virus and we we know that for, we know this number for a, a number of different uh viruses and diseases measles on the other hand is extremely contagious so if i've got the measles the chances are on average i may spread that to 18 more people while i've got the measles so some numbers are, are are smaller. Some numbers are like the measles, very highly contagious. H1N1 back in 2009 had a reproduction rate of about 1.5. So when we look at COVID-19, it's about 2.2 is what we what we think it is right now. And that number has been all over the place, right? When we first started, uh, the you know the World Health Organization thought it was up to you know four or five percent. And we've slowly come down on that number which is which is great. So when you hear people say, well it's it, you know it's more it's twice as as contagious as the flu well it it probably is from one point three to two point two is is somewhere in there, uh but still luckily it's you know it's it's not as bad as something like the measles is. Here's a list of just some common diseases that we know of and we know what that reproduction number is. So you can see measles, whooping cough, extremely contagious, a high reproductive number. Uh, and then when you get down to something like, um, uh, you know, HIV and AIDS around 2.2 uh, 2 to 5%. Um, then you get down to malaria I and mean, then my gosh malaria is 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 high SARS is is up there but this gives you an idea of, of, of those numbers of how contagious these diseases are so we're going to talk about the testing availability and the testing options for employers and and I know George gets this question every single day I get this question every single day what can I do to, to make sure my employees are, are ready to come back to work? Or what can I do if an employee comes to me and says, I think I've got a fever, or I think I've got a cough, or I've got a body ache? What, what's available out there for me to, to have at my disposal for my workforce? So in general, there's two types of tests right now to test for, for this virus. One is actual viral testing, right? That is That's going to be a nasal swab or an oral swab to to tell you, do you have the virus in your body right now? Are you positive or are you negative? The second means of testing we have is the antibody testing. And we're gonna talk about the antibody testing and what it means and what it doesn't mean. But in general, you got two options. I'm testing for the actual virus in my body, or I'm testing to see if I've got antibodies built up because of the virus. skip over that slide so when we when we split these up you've got two options for viral testing one is the PCR or the molecular some people refer to it as the molecular test this was the very first thing that was that was made available to us to test for this virus way back in you know January it's still what a lot of what a lot of places in states use as their criteria for a positive or negative test. We we had employees at the at the safety council that were flying to Alaska today. Alaska specified it has to be a PCR test for you to for you to show that you're positive or negative. And that's mainly based on a couple of things. One is that the PCR is 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 the tried and true gold standard test. But in addition, it was the only thing that was available up until recently over the past couple of months or so. So when you when you see a lot of uh, state requirements re te- uh, requiring testing or site requirements requiring testing to enter the gates of their of their site, a lot of times you need to look at it because it may specify it has to be a PCR or molecular test. Good news is we have a few more options at our disposal now. The FDA came out and, and authorized uh, the use of antigen testing. We use antigen testing a lot in clinics, and you just don't know it already, right? Antigen quick testing is done to test for the flu. If you walk into your doctor's office during the flu season and they run a, a flu test on you, it's an antigen test. If you walk in and, and they do a, a strep throat swab on you, chances are it's an antigen quick test. So the FDA came out and authorized new antigen quick testing for COVID-19. So. Uh, there are places around that that have the availability to run antigen quick tests now. We have one at the Health Center at the Houston Area Safety Council. We've run about 3,000 workers through that uh, test over the past three weeks since we rolled that out. It's out there. And we're gonna talk about the pros and the cons of each of those because there are there are always pros and cons to any test. So we are gonna talk about that shortly. And the second option for testing is the antibody test and we're gonna talk about what that means. So when you look at any test, and, and George, feel free to jump in at any time, you know, you're know you looking at ways to test parts of that virus. The virus is composed of many different parts. When you look at a PCR test, the PCR test is checking for the RNA in that, in that virus. You can see the RNA is, is that yellow squiggly thing inside of that, that, uh, that virus. That's what the PCR checks for. When you look at the antigen test, the antigen test is checking for the virus on the surface of that, uh, for the protein on the surface of the virus, those red spikes. So depending on what test you're you're undergoing or taking, it's checking for different components in the virus itself. Now this this differs from the antibody test, and we're gonna we're gonna chat a little bit about that now. So the antibody test is 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 a blood sample test it's going to check for past exposure to that virus and if you developed the antibodies because of that exposure or that infection in the past what the antibody test does not check for is if you're acutely infected right now if you've got virus in your body right now so the you know the the cdc has come out and said look antibody testing is great we want to know if you've been exposed and if you have antibodies in the past that's great but not the best solution to check uh, for for the general public or for workers to know if you've got the virus right now. It's it's not an acute test to see, is this person infected right now? It's to show, have I been exposed or have I been infected in the past, weeks ago, and have I built up any type of immunity to it? So, like I said, pros and cons to every test, right? Every test is going to have a, has has the ability to have uh, false positives, false negatives, you know, invalid conclusions. You know, no test is is 100% perfect across the board. When we look at the PCR test, that's the best test that we have out there. You know, there are cons to it. It's uncomfortable. If you've ever had that swab before, it goes back to almost your brain inside of your nose, and it's not comfortable. It can take several days to get back, depending on where that sample is being run. If you're fortunate enough to have it done at a hospital, uh, you're probably gonna get it back within the day or so, or maybe two days. If you uh, walk into a clinic and it gets sent off to one of the big commercial labs like Quest or CPL or CRL, they're running several days uh, back. Sometimes I don't get that PCR test back for 10 days when I, when I have to send it off to a commercial lab. So it can take uh, at least a day or so to get, to get back. On the flip side, the pro, it is a very highly sensitive test. It's gonna pick up minute uh, forms of that RNA in your body for weeks. And we're going to talk a little bit about that because sometimes that, you know, that can be a fault of of a test. Yes, it's great. It's sensitive. It's going to pick up if you're positive or you're negative. But it's also going to show you three months later if you still have virus floating in your body. And that can show up as a positive test. So I I see there's some great questions coming through on on the question board asking about that. Well, what does it mean if my employee tests positive that first week that they're showing signs and symptoms, but I send them back two months later and they're still showing positive. Well, it's because that PCR test is so dang sensitive; it's going to pick up specks of virus, even dead virus, floating around in your body weeks later. Now, does that mean you're you're still contagious? Probably not. And, and George can can comment on that in, in a few minutes, but it's still going to show positive in your in your body. So. It's a great sensitive test, but it does have that uh, hi, you know so highly sensitive that sometimes that can be uh, 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 a deterrent for getting somebody back to work because we're waiting on this PCR test to come back it comes back positive we send him two weeks later, it comes back positive again we send him two weeks later, it comes back positive again. Well what the heck Is he still contagious a month later? Probably not but but it's because that test is so dang sensitive. George, any comments to
0: that? Well, you're going to talk about it later, but but the uh, you're right. The reason the the reason that people can stay positive for weeks is because the test is sensitive, and there have been very good studies showing that after about day ten, and I know you've got a slide coming up about this, after about day ten in a normal. Uh, person, well, a a, a normal individual, an otherwise healthy individual has gotten the COVID, there's very good evidence that that, even if you're positive, that when they do special tests to see if they can replicate or grow the virus, it doesn't grow. And that has led to a dramatic shift in the last several weeks uh, in terms of what it, what kind of criteria you can follow to return people to work safely, even if they are positive. We'll talk about that later.
1: The antigen quick test, you know, definitely pros and cons to that as well. It's the same type of sample as the PCR test. It is a deep nasal swab, it is uncomfortable. Um, It is less sensitive than the PCR test. It hovers around 88% sensitive, uh, but highly specific when it comes to the positive. So that means if if it shows you that you're positive, the specificity or the the, the positive um, uh, accuracy is around 100%. So it, it's, it definitely has its pros, it has its cons. Definitely a pro is you can have that result back in a few uh, minutes or hours, uh, versus the PCR test that may take 10 days if you go to a, a, a private clinic. So those are kind of the two options right now, uh, readily available, at least in, in this area, for you to to know if if at the time of testing, you're sick, you're infected. Now, we do know, and I don't think I put a slide on this, but we do know from the time you get exposed to somebody to the time you're going to show positive on any test is several days. You can't get exposed to Aunt Sally at a family reunion on Monday and jump and go on Tuesday and get tested and and, and know for sure you're going to have a true positive result. You typically have to wait several days, and I, I know um, you know what, what is the what's the the guideline right now at the in the medical center or where you are, George? For right. So you should wait.
0: So so it, it depends if you have symptoms or not. So if you've had an exposure to Aunt Sally, and within two days you develop symptoms, you can test them right then and there because the incubation period ranges from two to fourteen days. Mm-hmm. However, most folks are not symptomatic. They've had an exposure. They're worried. They might get it. And so they want to be tested immediately. It doesn't make a lot of sense. By about day five is when you should start picking it up. So that, uh, in, in some cases here in the hospitals, uh, we have people that are out uh, just waiting to see if they develop it or not. If they have no symptoms, we sometimes will bring them back early at day five and test them. They have to be negative. Um, but that's the reason we wait till day five is to catch it uh, at, at probably the the uh, you know, when it's really likely to be positive, if it's going to be positive. But if sure. they have symptoms, you can do it anytime. Right,
1: so I think, I know there's some questions on, you know, false false negatives uh, on, on PCR tests, and that probably has has to do with some of it, right? Well, you if you test them too quickly, it, it's going to be a false negative, right? I mean, they do have virus in the body, but it's not enough to meet the threshold of the test being positive. So they may get, you know, a fever the next day, you go and test them again the next day, and they're positive. So uh, there, there is that, that, that window. I get asked that question a lot. You know, my, my employee says he got exposed, or maybe he got exposed at work. When should I test that crew? Uh, and, and George just answered that question. If your crew doesn't show symptoms, you need to wait probably, you know, at least five days to get them tested because you don't want to test them too soon and, and then end up with that that negative test. So, like we talked about, the antibody testing antibody is great to to show you if you if you have some sort of immunity. We're not sure what that means right now, but it does not tell you if you have the virus in your body at the time of testing. There's, you know, depending on what antibody level comes back, maybe it can give you some indication of the, if this was a new, a new infection versus an older infection, but again, it's not a good, a good way to, to show if you're acutely ill at that time. You'd have to do one of the PCR tests or the antigen tests for you to get that result if that's what you're, you're looking at. Uh, a lot of debate right now and a lot of studies undergoing about, well, if I show antibodies, what does it mean? You know, am I am I immune indefinitely? Am I immune for a few months? Am I immune for the, just this strain of of COVID nineteen? There's still a lot of uh, ongoing uh, discussion and studies right now about that. George, any any insight
0: into that? So uh, yeah, uh, the insight in terms of what it means is that it is less. And less clear what it means <laughs> uh, for a number of reasons. So antibody tests in the same way that when you described the viral test and you said there were two types, PCR and antigen, um, you know, not all antibody tests are equal um, because an antibody is just simply something that the body manufactures in response or, or to block sometimes uh, parts of the virus. But there are different antibodies because there are different parts of the virus. The best type of antibody test, which we do not have yet, is what's called a neutralizing antibody test. These are tests; uh, these are antibodies that go to that part of the virus that is responsible for allowing the virus to enter the cell and to reproduce. Um, and and they exist, but but commercially they're not very they're not all that available. So we use other things, and so if your antibody, um, you know, once you have the infection, after a few weeks, most people will develop this IgG antibody that Tommy has here. Uh, And I would personally, there there are two types of antibodies, one called IgM and one called IgG. Personally, I would would ignore the IgM. I, I don't even order it anymore because there've been too many quirky results, but we do follow the IgG. This is the one that theoretically, at least in other viral infections, when you've recovered from a viral infection, you develop IgG levels that are high, and they last for a certain period of time. For some viruses, like measles, they last the entire lifetime. But for other viruses, like the flu virus, they only last from season to season because the virus mutates every season. With uh, SARS, with with the COVID virus, uh, we don't know. We do know that most people will develop it starting at about one to three weeks after the infection. So as Tommy was saying, it's not good to use it for an acute infection because you have to wait at least a week for it, for it to even have a chance of starting to build up, but typically it takes a little bit longer. And um, and, and so when you see it, we know that somebody has had an infection. But now there, are, as more data gather, we're seeing different patterns. So for example, one of the more I don't know, I wouldn't call it concerning because we don't know what it means, but we're seeing that some people that developed IgG levels that are high may lose them after several weeks. These typically seem to be people that either had the disease with no symptoms or they had a very mild form of the disease. In contrast, people who were severely ill, and maybe enough to go to the ICU or maybe even get put on a ventilator, when they do their IgG responses, they tend to last a little longer. And so you got this trade-off. Well, what do I want, mild disease or severe disease? Well, I don't want severe disease, even if it does last forever, right? Um, so anyway, that's one of the problems. The other problem is that we don't know what it means in terms of Immunity yet, because not enough time has gone by. This is a new virus; we're only into it five or six months. I think, personally, my opinion. I think there that once you've had COVID, I think there's a pretty good chance that you do have some level of immunity. I'm not so sure these tests necessarily reflect that, um, but I do know. I think there is some immunity because one of the things that's been very rare or very difficult to demonstrate is reinfection. That, by reinfection, I mean you've had your first episode of COVID, you've gotten over it, you've recovered, and then you have a second one following another exposure. And it, I have yet to see one that I'm convinced. Now, that doesn't mean I haven't retested people that haven't been positive, but when I do the evaluation, usually it turns out to be a, a false positive. Hmm. Or other times what it is is you've had the acute infection, you've gotten over it, and then a few days later you come back and you're a lot sicker. Uh, what what they know what they call the cytokine blast right and that's not a new infection that's the, the the second part of that original infection which fortunately happens in very few people so the jury's still out on antibody testing I think it's very important to look into it and to get the right antibody but we don't know what it means and we certainly don't know what it means with respect to immunity
1: here's a, a good illustration of uh, you know there were some studies done on antibody uh, testing kits and how long after uh, somebody was um, uh, infected did those antibodies show up on those kits? And you can see, it's kind of hard to read if you're not used to reading one of these graphs, but the longer you went from being infected, the greater the likelihood of those antibodies were to show up on the on the test. So the, the vast majority showed up, you know, greater than 20 days from uh, from infection. So again, not one of those things you can just jump jump out overnight and go get an antibody test and think it's going to show something. You got to wait, you know, at least a week, like George said, for something to show up. You know, I put this in here because, you know, we, 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 we talk a lot about the PCR test and, and that being the, the best test. This was a a study on on 70 COVID positive patients in Singapore. They knew they were positive and they thought, well, let's just see how how perfect this PCR test is, right? So they they tested all of these people with one swab it showed 88% positive. They tested him again with two two different tests, 95% positive, again with three tests to get to the 100% positive. So they're definitely, you know, like we talked about, no test is perfect. It all depends on, well, how how well did that, did the swabber collect the sample, right? Did they get enough nasal uh, um, uh, sample on the Q-tip, on the swab, for it to, to, to run accurately, right? So there's a lot of things that go into play when you're swabbing somebody and running the test, uh, but I thought this was a good study to show, you know, it, it still, even if you do the tried and true PCR test, doesn't mean it's 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 always going to be 100% accurate. So CDC guidance on close contact, I get this question a lot, you know, uh, well, you know, my my coworker walked past me in the hall yesterday, or I sit across from him or her at the computer desk, and we have a barrier. Do I need to go get tested because they're they're positive? Well, if you look at what the CDC define, defines as close contact, it's within six feet of somebody for at least 15 minutes at a time, all right? So passing somebody in the hall doesn't really meet that criteria. Uh, if you provided home care for somebody who is positive, well, that's gonna be a close contact, obviously. But interesting, they put on here, if you had physical contact with somebody, so if you hug somebody, if you kiss somebody, if you touch somebody, uh, they put this separate as 15 minutes so if you walk up to aunt sally and give her a big smooch on the lips and you find out she's positive it probably meets the definition of of close contact by the cdc so you need to be monitoring yourself and consider going to get tested after that fat 5 days if you don't show symptoms if you share eating or, ten- or drinking utensils from somebody they consider that close contact you know if somebody sneezed on you or coughed on you then you forgo the the 15 minute Six feet distance, right? Now you've now you've met the criteria under CDC of of, belief, of being in close contact with somebody. So just some 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 good definitions to know and keep in your back pocket, especially if you if you've had an exposure at work or one of your employees has said I, I sit next to John and he's positive. Well, walk through the steps of does it meet the close contact definitions, and that'll give you a good starting point to know, well what what do I need to advise uh, my this fellow coworker. So, you know, difference between quarantine and isolation. Quarantine means you think you've been exposed to somebody, and you're going to stay home to 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 make sure you don't get sick. And the CDC uh, guidance for that is 14 days. If you think you've been exposed to somebody, uh, or you know you've been exposed to somebody, stay home for 14 days. Self-monitor, check for any symptoms, check for a fever. If after 14 days nothing arises you're safe to, to go back into society or go back to work. You know, if you wanna get a test during that period, great, you can go get a test, uh, but still, like we said, the test can be show negative and you may not show symptoms for uh, until that 14th day. So you still wanna keep an eye on yourself for that full 14 days. Isolation on the other hand is if you know you're sick or you know you tested positive, now you have to isolate yourself from from everybody. It's the same concept as quarantine, but to differentiate it between those who are exposed to those who are infected, we call it isolation. And CDC just updated this guideline, uh, you know, days or, or the last couple of weeks. Isolate yourself for 10 days after those symptoms have started or after you've tested positive. So 10 days, because like we said, there's usually that five-day window of no symptoms or you're not going to test positive. So In actuality, it's probably a a full 14 or 15 days. You're gonna be isolated from when you became infected, but from when you know you were, were infected by the symptoms or the test being positive, CDC says isolate for 10 days. So when can I escape isolation or quarantine? Quarantining after 14 days, assuming you never got sick. You can escape isolation after 10 days, assuming that you don't have a fever for the past 24 hours. And all of your symptoms have improved. This is what CDC says uh, is their, their guidelines and their recommendation for isolating, quarantining, and when you can leave that that status. All right, so we're going to leave it there uh, with uh, with the the formal uh, data and slides, and I'm going to go back. We've got some great questions that have come through. So you know this this was a question, and and I'll throw this at George. And I think we talked about it, so maybe it was answered, but it's a great question, a great scenario. Had an employee whose husband tested positive for COVID. Uh, He was asymptomatic. He was retested two weeks later, tested positive again two weeks later, and allowed to return back to work. Should this have happened? Is there ever a time when they test positive, but they're still allowed to come back to work?
0: The answer is, yeah. As we've discussed already, we've hinted at it, yes. This this actually occurs quite frequently. So under the new guidelines that Tommy just showed, um, you said two weeks later. So this per- that uh, if this person had no symptoms at the beginning, then uh, you allow ten days from the date of the test to go by. Sounds like that happened at least, and even more, sounds like it would have been maybe even closer to 14, but a minimum of 10 days. And as long as they were still symptom-free, they could go back to work. And even if they're positive, because of what we said uh, earlier, that after 10 days in regular, otherwise healthy individuals, um, the likelihood that they are contagious is very, very low.
1: So, you know, and I know a lot of, a lot of people, because this, it's been the guideline for, for so long, they're still relying on PCR tests to indicate when somebody is negative, but like in this in this uh, question, which was a great question, that poor dude is going to be positive for probably at least a month later, uh, right. or maybe maybe even up to six weeks later, or two months later. So if you're if that if you're relying on a PCR test to tell you when you're negative and using that as when you can go back to society and go back to work, it, it's probably uh, very constrictive in in when that person is allowed back to work. So assuming and,
0: go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, and I would say this this is true for general employers. CDC still does have the test-based return to work option available. In their most recent guidelines, they say that this should be the exception rather than the rule. But there are some circumstances where you really do want for somebody to be negative before they come back. For example, people in nursing homes or people uh, healthcare workers that uh, might have to work uh, with very immunocompromised patients and uh, things like that. Um, so there are still some scenarios, but in the overwhelming majority of cases, you really don't need testing. Uh, you, you can just do this symptom based because a persistent positive PCR will lead to more confusion and more anxiety than is necessary. It will also lead to an unnecessary number of days, uh, away from work when somebody could be back at work. Now, what, one thing that's important, I have to, a lot of folks, uh, that I've talked to, they say, well, they're 10 days out. Well, wait a minute, it's not just 10 days out. It's 10 days out and no fever or symptoms for the past 24 hours. By the way, up until last week, it used to be 72 hours. Um, but no fever or symptoms. So it's important that somebody talk to them, right? Typically, it's going to be their doctor or whoever your uh, you know, employee, um, whoever the employer-designated physician is. But they need to talk to these folks, because sometimes just talking over the phone you can tell this person yeah the 10 days have gone by this person is not ready to come back they are dragging their feet they are fatigued they're not back and a few more days would be um would be helpful so it's not just a cookbook approach it, it really needs to be a clinical decision right
1: yeah i will say that the cdc updated their their website on 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 this guidance on a quarantining and isolation recently and they've got some very easy to read Calendar scenario. So if you're if you're living with somebody who 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 uh, is is tested positive, it'll show you okay. Well, you need to start the 14 days from here. Now, if you get to day 13 and you're you're crossing your fingers tomorrow's the last day I can I can escape. Well, if Aunt Sally comes to visit you and now she tests positive the next day, well, guess what? It's 14 days all over again. So uh, if you go to the CDC website and, and just search CDC quarantining that that should pop up. It gives you some some real life scenarios on on those calendar dates and when you count and when you can stop the, the counting. Question was on you know what percentage of positive tests are false positives? Uh, and I'll just kind of throw out and George can can piggyback. It, of course it depends on the test, right? Every every test has its own sensitivity and specificity and and false positives and false negatives. So it, it really depends on what test you're you're looking at. What 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 is the PCR uh uh you know sensitivity and specificity
0: george it's in the 95 to 99 range however uh, so false positives and false negatives don't that doesn't depend only on the type of test it is obviously very important but on a a bunch of other aspects related to the test we mentioned uh, before you may have the best test in the world if you test that person too early it's going to be a false negative even if they are infected because you haven't waited long enough. If if the person obtaining the specimen didn't do it the right way, they collected an inadequate specimen, it's not the machine's fault. It's the specimen collection fault, right? So there are a number of other factors that you have to cover to make sure that all of those steps are in place before you talk about what we call the accuracy of the test, their sensitivity, specificity, and accuracy. All things being equal, if everything is done properly, then for the PCR, the 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 the, the, the gold standard, it is very high. Yep. Uh,
1: the question was about, are we going to share these slides with everybody? Absolutely. If you if you registered, then you will get an email with all of these slides, a link to the actual recorded whole webinar. So so yes, absolutely. We're, we're going to share that with everybody. George, you know, you talked about, you know, just commenting on accuracy of the test. Talk a little bit about, you know, uh, everything that I've, shown as far as how to collect a sample has been to go you know to the back of the nose to the back of the head and collect that sample but you know we do hear stories of drive-by you know testing facilities allowing the the patients to swab their own nostril and just do it do the tip of the nostril uh, how how accurate do you think those things are
0: okay so to me the gold standard is what you, you call it the deep nasal swab the the, the 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 name the technical name is nasopharyngeal swab which means It goes through the nose to the pharynx. The pharynx is the back of your throat. So it's got to go from here all the way back till it hits the wall, the wall being your throat, right? Right. Um, That's still the gold standard. It is uncomfortable, but it only lasts a couple of seconds, the discomfort usually. It has to be done right. Um, It's not a matter of shoving it straight up. Actually, that's very wrong. You actually have to keep it horizontal. We ask people to tip their heads back. So we try to get that swab as horizontal as possible, and then it just glides naturally to the back. And you have to uh, swab it and swirl it a little bit for a number of seconds, 10 seconds. I do five, I do both sides, and, and it's not because I have a thing for torturing people, I don't, but I do both sides of the nose and I do five seconds each, but some people do one side in 10 seconds. There are other swab. Uh, there are other ways, other types of specimens that are collected. One is a nasal swab where you don't go that far back. You may go halfway. What's called a mid-turbinate swab, maybe even outside the tip of the nose. Uh, some people collect oral swabs. It's interesting when we first started dealing with COVID back in January. The standard was you had to collect both a nasopharyngeal swab and an oral swab. And then ultimately they figured out that that wasn't really adding a whole lot, so they just left it at the nasopharyngeal. CDC is now, uh, uh, excuse me, before I go to CDC, the other thing that is um, being increasingly used is collection of saliva. And uh, there are some home-based kits now out there. It's important to understand that this is not like a pregnancy test. You don't um, take and spit into a little cup and then you do the test yourself and you know the line either turns blue or it doesn't um it's actually just for the collection and and all the ones that are commercially available that i'm aware of you have to send that off to a lab to be testing and that actually might have some there there, there might be some some uh, good support that that's an adequate uh way of collecting of self-collecting a specimen why is self-collection uh of specimens interesting Uh, uh because if you can collect the swab yourself that's one healthcare worker less exposed because they don't have to collect it. You collect it on yourself. However, CDC has come out and they say you can collect it any of those ways. And I'm this is my personal opinion, I wasn't too happy to see that because I still think the nasopharyngeal swab is the best way to collect, maybe followed by saliva, because with saliva you're getting enough stuff. Because at the end of the day, it's all about getting enough stuff, right? On the on the on the end of that q-tip or that swab so um yeah those are the different methods for collection
1: uh a question came through about how are retests being counted with the county and the in the state if somebody tests four times and they're positive four times is the county and the state counting those as four different tests or are they uh counting them as only one person being positive
0: yes that's only one person being positive they're counting new positives just like the rest of us are and actually as the need for retesting goes down because of these new CDC guides, that number should get closer and closer to being just the new positives. Yep. but but yes, they only count new positives.
1: I know that when we when we test people, you know we we have to submit a form to the county, we have to submit a form to the state, and on there we have to specify is this a retest or not? So I, I think that helps them uh, distinguish. Very good. That. Yeah. Uh, there was a question about your map, George. Uh, the county maps, let me go back to it. And the question was, if Harris County is, is, you know, one of the, should be one of the hotspots with a lot of cases, 57,000 cases, why are some of the surrounding counties lighter right. shaded
0: colors? Right. Because, do about- yeah. Keep going, keep going, keep going. There. Okay. Because, and uh, the, the slide kind of got caught off uh, the, the part on the right. Um, what it's showing here, there's a number of ways that you can look at variability or differences among counties one is looking at the total number of cases of covid from the get-go if that were the case that we were looking at and we are not i'm going to explain what we're looking at here if that was the case then houston dallas san antonio and austin would have big circles because more people live there therefore there are more cases but cumulative number of cases is not a good indicator of what's happening on a daily or a periodic basis so we look at other things and and what we're looking at is areas that are hot spots. What this graph is showing is areas in which the day by day, it's the percent change day to day in number of positives. So, for example, if you had 100 cases today and tomorrow you had 200, you would have a 100% increase. That would be a fiery red spot, even if you're in a small county that has very few people. So in Harris County, if you look there, it's kind of a, a light shade of orange. That means it's still growing up, going up, but the percent increase day to day is not um, as big as it was before, okay? So uh, it's always important to read the small print, and I had a feeling somebody would ask that, uh, so I, I looked at it, made sure ahead of time. If I had this, the slide to do over again, I wouldn't have chopped off the, the title there on the right, but that explained it. But gotcha. this is day-to-day change. So we have a lot of cases in Houston. We have a lot of cases, in, and, and this is actually Harris County because this is my counties, but our day-to-day change in the last few days has not been as big as in other places. It's still been going up, but not by the same percentage as in other places.
1: A uh, good question came up, uh, and it's about kind of counting those those quarantine days and when you can go back to work. And, and the But the caveat in, in this person's question was, well, how does a positive test... throw a a wrench in that, right? So if somebody's quarantining for 14 days because they got exposed to Aunt Sally last weekend, if on day 13, they start to get sick or test positive, that's when you start counting those days uh, all over
0: again. Is that right, George? Yes. So here, the critical thing is, do you have symptoms or not? If you have symptoms, even if you don't test for two days, once you find out you're positive you go back to what the date of that first symptom and that's when you count 10 days forward. So let's say I developed my symptoms today the 22nd. Let's say I developed my symptoms on the 20th, 2 days ago, but I didn't think it was anything and I didn't get tested till today. My test today is positive. My 10-day count starts 2 days ago because I had symptoms. But we also know that there are people who have no symptoms. We call them asymptomatic and they are yet positive. And when you're dealing with an asymptomatic person, you don't know when they started. Uh, They could have started five days ago. Maybe they started 10 days ago. Maybe they started yesterday. Since there's no way of knowing, what we do is we take the date of the test, because there's nothing better. So uh, I've been feeling fine, and somebody decides uh, that I need a test. And even though I feel fine, I go and test, and I come up positive, My my day one starts the date of my test. My, uh, my positive test and then you count forward 10 days from there it's 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 a little bit iffy but you got to start with so you got to have some reference with symptomatic it's very easy the day they started having symptoms
1: uh, one of the questions that we get we get asked a lot and we've seen this scenario right you've got two different types of tests uh, antigen quick test we'll talk about that one and a pcr test right they're checking for two different things on that virus so it's it's likely that you may get two different results because of that The PCR is very sensitive. It's gonna check for that RNA in that virus for weeks and weeks after you've you've been infected where the antigen test checks for something totally different. It checks for the protein on the virus. So so you may get two different tests, right? I may test positive on the PCR. I go get retested two weeks later, my antigen test is negative. If I wanna do a PCR on that same day, the PCR may be positive. So then you gotta kind of work with with your, your treating provider to figure out, okay, well, what do these mean? I've got one showing he's positive, I've got one showing he's negative. What it, you know, what what exactly does it mean? Should I do both? Should I get an antigen test and a PCR test done at the same time on everybody? Or if the antigen test comes back positive, should I do a PCR test? What what would you comment on that, George?
0: It depends on the scenario. For example, when people come into um, clinics and things like that. Like you said, the antigen test, if it's positive, it's 99% sure that that the infection is there, right? So you don't need to act on it. Uh, If it's negative, depending on the scenario, I will sometimes send, a. well, I don't do the antigen test, but for example, if somebody, here's a typical example, somebody has symptoms, very suggestive of COVID. They went somewhere, they got an antigen test, it was negative, I see them the next day, they've got symptoms, I'll send a PCR because I wanna be absolutely sure in that case. Um, so to me, a negative, although it's reassuring, a negative is less important than a positive on an antigen test in terms right. of relying on the result. But it depends, You know, they may be negative and they may be feeling fine and they had no exposure and I don't even know why they tested, I might just let it go with the antigen. Or I tell them, look, if you develop symptoms, we'll test you at that point. Right.
1: Uh, there's a question from one of our good friends here at the safety council asking when you the I think it was a slide on testing, uh, testing versus cases. Let me go back. I think it's this one. And the question was: is this is do you mean is it testing availability on this slide or actual testing
0: being performed? It's testing actual actual testing being performed these data come from the state health department so we're just using their data to construct our curves and again this is not total number of cases it's percent change okay so again if you look at the orange line this is the percent change from yesterday to today today to tomorrow tomorrow the day after and you see that the numbers are still going up. We know that that's happening in Texas. The total number of cases is increasing, the percent change from day to day is going up. Yesterday I had 100, today I had 110, tomorrow I have 130, okay? Same thing with the tests. It's not that the number of tests have, have, that we're not doing more testing, it's that we're not necessarily increasing. We've hit a, a, a point where it's flat. We're doing the same number of tests every day, and that may change. There's a lot of reasons for that there, it might be availability of tests it might be tests that uh, you know for whatever reason there might you know there, there still are shortages of supplies in some places in Texas. Fortunately we don't have that problem but it's not enough to just say I've got the test machine and I've got the little swab because there are other parts to it you know there might be a medium the, the, the liquid that you're supposed to transport it in or you may run out of swabs uh, and things like that that make doing the test um, uh, not feasible
1: a question uh, from one of our good colleagues was asking, is the antigen test result uh, reportable to public health authorities like the PCR? And the answer is yes, we have to report those. Uh, and they they do with them as they please, but yes, they they, they we do have to report those test results. Uh, another question, can you comment on on the saliva test for PCR availability in Houston and Texas? Um, I haven't seen it readily available in 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 the Houston area. George, have you
0: have you heard? No, I, I haven't seen anybody collecting. And again, it's a collection system, right? Um, I know that in other countries they are using saliva home kits. Uh, I was listening to a presentation yesterday from some investigators in Australia, and I know that they are still working on the ideal, but but it's a home collection kit. Um, I haven't. I haven't come across any saliva samples. I've personally done a few oral swabs in people who um, had been tested so many times through the nose that they were actually getting sore and things like that. And they were reluctant to be tested. And then in those cases I did an oral, but I haven't done saliva. Uh,
1: Just a general uh, question and and just asking for a comment. What are your thoughts on the CDC rolling back that, uh, that 24 hour from 72 hours to 24 hours uh, with no symptoms, fever no symptoms?
0: Well, um, <laughs> two two parts of the answer. I was kind of miffed because I we had just made the switch at the university to go from test-based testing to the return to work uh, based on symptoms, which was 10 days and 72 hours. And then when we were just getting that implemented, here they come up and they say 24 hours. I'm going, oh, geez. Because every time you implement a change, and, and employers know this very well, You know, you don't implement it on one person. You have to apply it to your entire employee population. And so when you roll out, if you're hitting people constantly every week with, oh, we changed this, we changed this, we changed this, they get confused. They get, uh, so 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 um, they get a little bit upset sometimes. And so the timing of when you introduce changes is important. So I was a little bit miffed with that because we're still going through the implementation of the last one. Having said that, I didn't thought about it. You know, most people that reach day 10, uh, if they've been asymptomatic for 24 hours, the majority of them will also have been asymptomatic for 72. Yeah. But, but, but again, I think this is where the phone call is important from the clinician, the phone call or the visit or whatever system you have from the provider, because talking to these folks to make absolutely sure that, um, that they meet the criteria and that they really are doing well is very important um i can i i've spoken to many people at day 10 or 11 and ask them how are you doing and they say Lo, i'm fine uh, i think i'm ready to go back to work and i can just hear them over the phone i know they're not ready to go back to work and so i would apply the same thing here even more so since it's only 24 hours it's probably okay cdc doesn't usually issue guidelines unless it has data behind it so uh, i i i do that is reassuring to me but the timing was pretty bad
1: i <laughs> know i did see and that question came through asking about this but i did see on their website that they no longer recommended uh, uh using a test-based system to return to work and i think that's what we're talking about but you know they, they want you to follow those days you know if you've, if you've gone through the days you've gone through the 14 days or the 10 days and no your symptoms are better or no symptoms no need to get a test uh so that was their updated uh recommendation it's nice to have a test in my opinion to know you know positive or negative but the cdc says you don't have to hang your hat on a test
0: well, well they they recommend it strongly the symptom-based test but they haven't removed the test-based strategy They they still do say that in some cases it might be Useful to do. I alluded to some of those earlier, like in yeah. nursing homes or Weakened immune system, very, very vulnerable patients, right? Yeah. Tommy, I had a question for you. It's actually a double, a two-part question. It relates to two things that were asked. First is, yes, you report to the health department. So, do you know if the health department is counting positive antigen tests in their total case? And the reason I ask this is because before mid-May or so when you saw positive results from the state, they were actually counting, they were mixing PCRs and antibodies. Antibodies, right, exactly. They stopped doing that, but that does raise the question about the antigen. And then the other question is, do we know if antigen tests uh, remain positive in the same way that PCR may remain positive for a long period of time?
1: Yeah, yeah, two good questions. And I just saw recently where the state at the state level remove the antigens from the total count of positives uh uh and i think what they're going to do now because they were mixing with the pcr so they said well apples to apples let's let's remove it so i'm i'm it looks like they're going to start reporting those just kind of separately off to keep it consistent because they've been reporting pcrs all along um, and uh, so at the county level I, I do believe they're still counting the antigen tests in you know mixed up as with the the pcrs just as an overall uh positive and, and the second question is i'm not really sure about how long that antigen positivity uh will keep showing up you know i i just anecdotally we've seen you know where, where after the two-week mark the antigen will be negative PCR is still gonna show positive. Uh, so uh, that's, you know, just anecdotally, but I uh, haven't seen any major
0: studies on it. Yeah, I haven't seen anything either. That's, that's what I was asking you. Yeah. Um, let's see, can a, sh- can
1: or should an employer recommend antigen versus PCR versus antibody when sending a an employee to the clinic? Should Should, can, an employer recommend or set guidelines, or this is the test I want to see. What do you What do you think about that, George? I think you're the expert. <laughs> so, so <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, in fact, we had we had a uh, we had a um, a labor attorney on one of these these panels uh, over the past uh, couple of them, and that question was asked: Can I require an employee to uh, to have a test done? And she said, Absolutely, you can. If, if if that is part of your your safety program to require a test. Result to show negative, then by all means you can you can do that. You know, can can you can you determine what that employee has? I mean, yeah, I think you can. Uh, employ employers are absolutely doing it. And when we asked the attorney, she said she didn't see any problem with it. You know, whatever you think is based on good data and good science is uh, is is a valid test to have uh, run on that employee to assure a safe and healthy workplace. Then then I then the the. It looks like the answer is yes, you
0: can. So, so what I've heard, I, I agree. I think that tests for active infection, antigen and PCR, uh, employer has the right to, to require them. Uh, another, another issue is, you know, what are you going to do with the result, especially if it represents a persistent positive? But I think the jury is still out on whether employers can require antibody tests. What I uh, have read is that they cannot. But that might be a good question for your labor attorney.
1: Right. No, I, I agree with you. I believe the ADA had yeah. said, you know, antibody test, not the best way to to test somebody, but definitely the PCR and the antigen test, absolutely. Um, I think we kind of answered this, but it was asked again, how long after an exposure before somebody tests positive and, and is contagious? So uh, it, it, it it definitely varies that two to 14 days. So it just, you know, that's the answer. It It definitely can vary.
0: Yeah, let me let me add a little bit to that. So, uh, two to fourteen days is the range from the very beginning that CDC and World Health Organization uh, have been using to identify when the earliest following an exposure that somebody might develop symptoms or, or become contagious, which is day two, and what is the latest, and they set the latest at fourteen days. In reality, I think the longest that uh, a person has been. Actually, uh, the longest uh, for the incubation period has been around day 12. They added those extra two days just as sort of padding uh, as, as a safety measure. However, the majority of people, the median, as they say, the majority of people will develop symptoms or uh, become contagious at between day five and eight, some places say between days five and nine. So it's like a bell-shaped curve, right? So some people can can start getting symptomatic really, really early. Most people take a few days somewhere between days five and eight or nine, and then a very, very few people might not get it until day 10, 11, or 12.
1: Excellent. How sensitive are the the rapid antigen tests? Sensitivity is about 88%. Specificity, meaning the accuracy of the positive result, is around 99 to 100%. So uh, there's your your, uh, sensitivities and specificities for the antigen test. How long after uh, the virus is in the body, will the antibodies develop and show on a blood test? Uh, I think we covered that, but it definitely takes at least a a week before you can be confident that it's gonna be
0: accurate. Well, well, one to three weeks for the IgG. The IgM uh, starts appearing a little bit sooner, but like I said, it's not a very trustworthy test. And even if it was, we don't know what it means. Right, (laughs) right. Let's see um,
1: on the guidelines for employees going back to work after being uh, positive and being sick and isolated at home. What is the best guidance you suggest? Uh, and you know, should they do should they? And the question was, should they do two negatives uh, later after the 24 you know 24 hours apart, like the CDC recommended, or um, what? You know, what what are some recommendations we can give?
0: So if we go by CDC, they are encouraging employers, uh, with with some exceptions, but most employers to go use the symptom-based or time-based return to work strategy. That means, person gets sick, you count ten days from the day their symptoms started. At day ten, you ask, you you send them to a doctor or a provider, uh, somebody that can review it with them. Ask how they've been doing the previous 24 hours. If they haven't had any fever or symptoms, they can go back to work. If they don't have symptoms, but you still know that they were positive, then use the date of the test, the positive test result, you count 10 days forward from that, and then they can be evaluated in the same manner. If they're no fever, no symptoms for 24 hours, they can go back to work. And then there are some scenarios where testing, again, especially if that employee is going to be going back to an environment where he or she might be exposed to, might, might expose <laughs> um, vulnerable people vulnerable patients, very sick patients, for example, nursing home, transplants, et cetera, where the test-based strategy might still be a a reasonable option?
1: A good question came in. I think we touched on it, but not, not, not specifically to this question. And the question was, you know, some clinics are recommending, well, if the antigen, if you do a quick antigen test and it's negative, you should also do a PCR test. and I, George, you commented on it, but I think it depends on, and the and actually the guidelines from the manufacturer say, if you highly suspect somebody is infected, they've got a fever, they've got body aches, they've got a cough, they've got everything under the sun, or maybe it's just one symptom. And the antigen test shows negative. It's possible that it's a false negative test, and then you should consider doing the PCR test, which is more sensitive. But if you're just testing routine people, uh, no symptoms, they've had no exposure, and the antigen test shows negative, then you can be, you know, ninety percent confident that it's a true negative test.
0: So, so I would add to your, what you said: uh, not only the symptoms, but ask have they had a confirmed exposure. Um, in terms of the first part of how you answered it. So if somebody has, you know, an exposure that really kind of drive, you know, a, a, it was a real exposure. They were close up, people were coughing all over them, et cetera. They later found out that person was positive. Then uh, my index of suspicion and maybe wanting to do another test would go up. But if they don't have the exposure and on top of that, they don't have any symptoms, I agree with you. I mean, sure, might as we'll take it at, at face value. Absolutely.
1: There was a question from a good friend of mine, Georgette, but I bet you, Georgette, we probably can't answer this one because it has to do with that FFCRA guidelines for pay. Uh, I don't know, uh, George, if you're an expert in that realm or not. No way. No way. So I will get that answer to you from our HR uh, because we've we've definitely had to answer that question a lot via HR, but I'll, I'll get that to you. Um. Let's see here. So the question was, are employers um, allowing a, an antigen test as a as a basis for returning to work versus waiting the full 14 days? And yes, they are. Uh, they certainly are. They're certainly you know doing the PCR test as well to to get out of that 14 days. Uh, but just know, as we've as we've talked about, you can test somebody on day 10. And it can be negative on both the PCR and antigen test. And on day 14, they start to have symptoms and then are positive. So yes, you can. It's a good way to screen, but they still should continue to self-monitor if they're an essential worker and you need them back to work. They self-monitor, check daily for temperatures, even after they've tested uh, negative. Would you concur with that, George?
0: Yes, actually, all of us should be self-monitoring, even if we haven't had the test. Right. And even if we are still at work, I mean, I have no option. Every every day I walk into the hospital, I get zapped with the the temperature thing, and I get the questions asked. But even if you don't work in a hospital, we should all be aware of what the symptoms of COVID are. And by self monitoring, we don't mean you report it to anybody. You're just aware. You pay attention to symptoms. You may want to take your temperature, things like that. I think that's that's something everybody ought to be doing. All
1: right. I did see uh, George. I'll ask you this, so you can keep it unmuted you want to talk a little bit about the studies on on blood typing and and, and more in the, certain blood types more susceptible to uh, this virus versus
0: not. Yes, and I forget which ones. I think I think mine is more susceptible, A, but right. from what I've read. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I've seen those reports. I have to be honest and say that I haven't spent a lot of time on them, so I don't know what the underlying rationale is. Maybe you do, Tommy. I, I have seen the reports. You know, a lot of times and this is less my physician background and more my epidemiology background, we see two things uh, that relate to each other. That doesn't mean one causes the other. We call those associations, not necessarily causes. And we can find a lot of associations and a lot of things, so that doesn't mean that they're necessarily causally related. So you need to do more research to understand. And one of the important things, and it's probably been done if they have published these articles is to me it's not enough to tell me hey more people with group a uh, blood type uh, get severe infections after i control for everything else it's also important for them to explain to me well what would the mechanism be how, how would that lead you to become more um you know at, at greater risk of having a severe infection we can do that for obesity we can do that for diabetes we can do that for people who have underlying heart disease because we've known for a long time that people that get infections and have these conditions, especially underlying heart, lung uh, disease or diabetes, are going to have a worse time of it. This may be the same type of association, uh, but, but we, uh, of explanation, but I don't know what the explanation is for the blood type and I'm not saying it doesn't yeah. exist, it's just I haven't gotten into it that much. Yeah, I saw the
1: same study, George, and it said if you, blood type A was more susceptible, blood type O was less susceptible, but you know, I would take it at its, with a grain of salt probably until we know more.
0: Or another way to say it is what I saw was blood type A, which is my type, I stopped being interested in the article.
1: Yeah, <laughs> there you go, there you go. You know, a good question was, you know, well, if we if we tell employees that, hey, you just got exposed today, You need to wait five days until we until at the earliest we we would want to test you. You know how do you how do you uh, lessen their anxiety uh, during those five days about bringing it home to to grandma or bringing it home to the kids? Uh, What recommendations would you give, George?
0: Those people have to isolate. I mean, for starters, they should be in isolation if they've had a known exposure. CDC says we're not going to do anything. It's 14 days. If you want to test them with all the risks that you explained and 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 you know here in the medical center we sometimes have to bring these folks back earlier than with the 14 days because we need them i mean because there are staff shortages we have to have nurses we have to have doctors and so we will do it at day 5 um, to allow that period of time but ideally we should actually the safest thing to do would be to leave them at home in 14 days but some people you really can't afford that so we bring them back cautiously and the way we do it is bring them back at day five, make sure that they have no symptoms. Um, And remember, hospital environment is very different maybe from other types of businesses or industries. So we bring them back at day five and we have them self-monitor. And if they um, even sneeze, (laughs) they get retested. Mm -hmm. But more important than all of that is we protect them. We know that masking works. We know that eye protection works. Uh, as long as you do it right, and as an example of that, and even though I don't have the numbers, um, you know, most of the cases that we are seeing of infected healthcare professionals here in the medical center are not coming from the workplace. They are mostly coming from outside, from the community, or or it's not known, um, and they bring it into the workplace, and then they might infect a coworker. But even we have relatively little coworker infections because. I'm not saying we put them in moon suits, but we protect them, and and which means that we're also protecting others from them. And that's what, And you don't always get that in 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 other businesses. Yeah, people are wearing masks, but you all have to realize that in a hospital we add layers of protection. You know, the bandana ain't gonna work in a hospital. It has to be a surgical mask at a minimum, or an N95 in certain circumstances. We now have everybody has to wear eye protection, face shields. That's not common in the community. So uh we bring them back carefully and we bring them back in such a a way that we protect them and others from them Mm
1: -hmm. thank you for that george uh question was related to an antibody test but i'll i'll answer it in, in in more general terms the question was does the antibody test differentiate between different strains of the coronaviruses and uh so the answer is it depends on what test you would have and who the manufacturer is and have they gone through all those steps to assure that if you do get a test done and and it's positive that you know it's not a coronavirus that causes the common cold, right? it's It's specific to this uh, SARS V2, you know what this this specific uh, strain of coronavirus. So yes, the ones that are out there that are FDA authorized, have gone through those motions to t- to to run trials on on multiple different coronaviruses and other viruses to make sure you don't get a false positive due to another strain of the virus. George, you want to add anything?
0: Uh no, I mean that's that's correct. There there are seven different types of coronavirus out there. The last time I checked, four of them are responsible for the common cold, and then we have SARS, MERS and SARS-CoV-2, which is the 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 one we're dealing with now. And, you know, they all belong to the same group of viruses. They have these little spiky things. That's the corona, right, the crown. Um, when you look at their genome, they have a lot in common, but there are certain areas of that genome that are unique to each of the seven types, and that's what the PCR goes for, those unique areas that are unique for the, the COVID-19 virus. Uh, and that's what allows them to not be confused or not test positive for other coronaviruses.
1: Uh, one of our colleagues uh, asked, are neutralizing antibodies, are they also from the IgG type, or, or what, what type of antibodies are those?
0: Um, they're called neutralizing antibodies. Uh, I, I don't know what type. I know that that's the name for them. Um, uh, when you develop a test for them, they probably are IgG. I don't know that for sure. Um, but the reason that they are so interesting is because we they neutralize the virus, right? Like you were saying, antibody tests, you can you can develop, a, the body develops an antibody towards probably a whole host of different antigens or proteins on the virus. Not all of those interfere with the ability of the virus to replicate. Neutralizing antibodies do too. And, and if you allow me a little bit, a segue, one of the things that makes it difficult to understand whether IgG reflects immunity or not is because, it seems like the body's response to this virus activates two different parts of our immune response. One is what we call humoral uh, immunity. And, and that's the one that, is, uh, that, that antibodies when, you when, when, uh, th- that's what our body creates antibodies to the virus. And those antibodies are effective at neutralizing the virus. And, and so you, you develop a test for that and you can measure that, right? But there's another type of immune response called the cellular response. it's 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 directed by another type of white blood cell called a T cell, and that is not picked up necessarily by an antibody test. The reason that is so fascinating to me is you have this dual response. the antibody may just tell you about half of the the issue. And so that could explain, for example, even in people whose antibody levels fade over time, maybe they are still immune because of this um uh, you know the, the because the, the, their immunity has been developed through T cells. You all probably heard a couple of days ago that Oxford University and, and Cambridge has come up with a new vaccine that seems very, very promising, but it is different from the other vaccines that are also showing promise that are being developed, like in the U.S. You've probably heard of the Moderna um, lab, which is working with NIH to develop a vaccine. The interesting thing about the one at Oxford, all other vac- the majority of other vaccines that are being developed are targeting this antibody response right the humoral uh response which may, may be all that it takes to protect you but the oxford vaccine interestingly affects appears to affect both of them it blocks both the cellular response right. as well as the immune the humoral, the antibody response so you get a double whammy so we'll see you know most of the time in vaccine research you get really hyped up about something and then when it's put to the test, yeah, it doesn't yeah. work out. But, yeah. but I thought that was pretty interesting because that's different from some of the other things
1: we developed. That's great, some promise there, hopefully. Uh, a question was just on, on process and protocol for the safety council. Can I send my employees up to the council to get tested? Yes, absolutely, we, we, we got the whole shebang full of testing. So we can do the PCR, the antigen, the antibody, whatever, whatever the case is, we, we have full capabilities of doing that as well um let's see here i think we've got about four minutes left i think actually our invite said till 12 30 but we went ahead and and lasted through uh till one but i'll be respectful of everybody's time there's a bunch of questions still left unanswered and what we typically do we're going to send these slides out to everybody who registered as well as the link to the recorded webinar and then in addition when we have unanswered questions we'll put those in a spreadsheet with the question and the answer next to it, so that way we answer 100 of, of, uh, percent of everything. Let's see here, let me see if I can fire shoot some of these here. Uh, what, talk about, um, I saw on the news, and you and I briefly chatted about it via email, George, but pool testing now at the labs, what does that mean and, and what does that mean for the backlog of the testing?
0: Yeah, it, it's very interesting. We're still trying to figure out the best use, so you all have heard that there are shortages, right? That one of that there aren't there's not enough testing for various and sundry reasons. One of them might be that there aren't enough testing labs or testing uh, reagents out there. So, one of the interesting approaches to make to maximize efficiency is what call, what's called pool specimen testing. And this has been done before. It's been done for HIV, it was done for Ebola, I believe, and uh, some other uh, infectious diseases. So if you want to save on tests, what you can do is you can take a group of people. Let's say you've got a crew at a construction site, five, six, seven, 10 people, and you want to know if there is active infection in those 10 people. You can test each of them individually, which is what we normally do, and that means 10 separate tests, or you can get specimens from all tests, all 10 of them, put them into one bucket, for lack of a better term, and then just test them at the same time all together. And you're going, well, that's kind of weird. Well, no, not necessarily. If that test comes up, that test, which is the pooled test reflecting 10 people, comes up negative, then you can say everybody in that group was negative, I can move on to another group of 10 workers, for example. So with one, running one test that consists of 10 specimens, and 10 is just a number I, I, I pulled out of the air, you've got your answer. If, if instead of negative, there is a positive, you know, it comes back positive, then somebody in that group of 10, maybe more than one person, but somebody in that group of 10 is positive. So then you have to go back and test each person to see who it is. But in the majority, especially in areas where the disease is not very prevalent, that means that a low percentage of the population, only a low percentage of the population has the disease, pooled specimen testing might be very reasonable uh, because the chances are very great that you can test large numbers of folks and everybody will be negative and then you only have to test individually when when one of those pool specimens comes up positive. The other day, the FDA approved its first pool specimen testing lab, and that was uh, Quest Lab, but they are calling a pool specimen four tests. So I don't know if you get as good a bang for the buck from four than you would get from 10 or 20. I mean, intuitively, you would not. It's got to be done right. It sounds like a great idea, but there are problems, so the collection is very important. Because you're putting a bunch of specimens, pooling specimens, and you have to make sure that you get enough stuff uh, from each of those 10 people for for the test to be valid, that the the specimen isn't diluted. But they've done some comparison studies, and PCR is so sensitive. And by the way, you got to do PCR with this. This is not for antigen and certainly not for antibody testing. But PCR uh, is so sensitive that even with dilute specimens, it picks it up. So it's something to keep an eye on. I know that CDC uh, has been talking about it, and FDA has as well, and Dr. Fauci has been talking about it. Uh, I'm reviewing a paper right now for a journal that uh, looks at uh, this um, uh, this issue, especially in terms of being used in business, places of business. Um, can't say anything about it because the uh, the article needs a lot of work still, and it's not mine. I'm reviewing it so um, but that's that's kind of where things are. So keep your eyes out for that. It, it was pretty effective for HIV a long time ago.
1: Good. Excellent. Well, we're at the one o'clock mark. I'm going to ask this final question. I think it's a real life scenario. Employee and his family all test positive after a vacation. The employee has no symptoms, but all the other family members are. Uh, after the 14 days, so they all test positive, right? So after the 14 days uh, uh, isolation, uh, The employee does another test. He comes back negative. Everybody, everybody else in the family is positive. Can we allow that person to go back to work, or do we need to keep him at home because everybody else is still showing positive? I think you're muted,
0: George. Oh, sorry. Did the other way around. This person was positive originally, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, he can go back to work. That's not the problem. The problem is when everybody in the family except that worker is positive. And then you don't know when to start counting, because right. unless you isolate the negative employee, the employee who tests negative completely from the rest of the family, and then you start counting 10 days from there or 14 days from there, you don't know when. And yeah. um, actually, this happened very close. I hope he doesn't mind my son. <laughs> so so my grandson, uh, who's one year old, and with this I'll finish, um, was exposed to another kid in daycare and uh and he developed symptoms uh a few days later he did not test but what because they didn't know that there had been a positive exposure in the daycare but a few days later three days later they got a letter from the daycare saying it was positive and then my daughter-in-law that day developed symptoms she was positive so it's my daughter-in-law and the baby and then my son my son uh, they're already back to well the kid's not back to work he's not employed he's only one year old um but um You know, my daughter-in-law is back to work, but my son has to continue, even though he's asymptomatic, He maybe he got it, but he has to continue and complete 14 days from the day that my daughter-in-law was released to go back to work, because his exposure to her continued every single day. Had he been able to remove himself, then the clock would have started differently, but a one-year-old, there's there's no such thing as social distancing from a one-year-old. Yeah, yeah.
1: Excellent. Well, uh, I knew this was going to be a hot topic today and I think we have probably around, I don't know, 50 questions left unanswered. So, uh, we will get all of those answered and, and emailed out to everybody so everybody can have both the recorded webinar to look at as well as the spreadsheet of unanswered questions. So, again, we thank you. Uh, if there's another topic that you would like us to do, feel free to email us at the Safety Council and we will be happy to, to roll something out if we're, if we, if we at all means can. Uh, but I hope everybody stays safe and healthy and. Uh, Let us know if we can be of assistance with anything that you might need. Thank you, George. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Tommy. It's always a pleasure. These are fun. And thanks, folks, for putting up with us. Absolutely. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.